All right. Well, I feel a bit disorganized this evening. It's been a whirlwind preparing for this message, and uh, primarily that is because I can't find a single person anywhere who agrees with me about these parables. So this will be interesting. These are the parables about the postponement of the kingdom. Jesus came to offer the kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament to Israel. Israel rejected him as their king, and so this kingdom did not get canceled. It did not get exchanged and transferred to the church. It is Israel's promised kingdom, and it will be fulfilled in them, by them, through them. And so that is what Jesus is teaching. This was shocking to those who believed in the kingdom, who received Jesus' message of the kingdom. And he is answering this question that they would have. How in the world did this happen? How did the Messiah come and Israel miss it? And so there's a bit of background that we're going to have to go through before we start these parables. Primarily because we have not yet in the gospel narratives seen Jesus teach in such a manner. His words have been clear. His teaching has been precise and on point. Everyone who heard understood, and partly that was the issue. They didn't like what he was saying because they understood what he was saying. Now, they're not going to get to understand what he's saying. This is totally different. This is a radical change. So for our background, we want to remember the kingdom has just been rejected. This is the same day. In fact, it possibly was just moments after. He departs the same house which he entered in chapter 12. In chapter 13, he is now leaving that house. He's going to the shore, he's getting on a boat, and he sets out just offshore and begins to teach the crowds that just witnessed the rejection of the kingdom. This is the third of five kingdom discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is primarily concerned with what is going on here in this chapter. That is why he has the most complete uh, record of these parables. Jesus taught quite a few parables on this day. We have 10 of them recorded. Some of them he would repeat later on. Matthew chose to record eight of these. Two of them are found in Mark and Luke because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all being editors, did not concern themselves with gathering every single detail, but the details necessary to understand their theme and their message. Matthew's message was on the kingdom, therefore he recorded a more complete record of the kingdom parables. These parables are not disconnected from one another. They are not one-offs. They are an intricate web of teaching. Jesus is using parables to explain parables. These are not about spiritual salvation. These are about the kingdom. One must be spiritually saved to enter into the kingdom, but the issue at hand is not how do I get saved or how do I know that I'm saved? It's why in the world did the kingdom get rejected? And so this is also not about the course of this age. These kingdom parables are not about the church. This is not teaching what the church will be like now that the kingdom has been postponed. These are teaching 
about what just happened. What did Jesus experience when he came, offered the kingdom, and was rejected? So these are an explanation about the remnant of Israel. They will persevere to the end of the age. There will be a harvest, but it will not necessarily be what they expected in the Old Testament. It is going to be a kingdom, but the process of getting there will not be what they thought it would look like. We want to hone in here then on some of these ministry shifts that Jesus undergoes. His whole ministry has just changed. His first purpose was to offer the kingdom. That offer was rejected, and so he changes tactics because his message is also changing. His signs, which had originally been for the purpose of provoking Israel to make a decision about his messiahship, that original purpose is finished. They made their decision, and it was irrevocable. They chose to reject him, and that was the unpardonable sin. Now, his signs change purpose. The purpose of his signs is to instruct the apostles for the ministry that they would have after his departure. One exception to this is the sign of Jonah. He promised that there would be one sign left for Israel about their Messiah to provoke them to receive him as the Messiah. Two are historical. The resurrection of Lazarus and the resurrection of Christ himself. And one is yet future. The resurrection of the two witnesses at the midpoint of the tribulation, which will lead to the reception of the Messiah by Israel. His miracles also changed. At first, they were to provoke faith amongst Israel. In order to receive his signs and to provoke them to accept him as the Messiah, he performed miracles. And as Israel in unbelief, saw these miracles, they would become Israel in belief. Unfortunately, these miracles they did not accept, and these were the final thing that were rejected as witnesses to his messiahship. And so the purpose of his miracles now shift as well. No longer are they for the purpose of provoking faith in Israel, but they are a response to faith on the basis of compassion. There's a policy shift then because of this. No longer does he instruct those whom he heals to go and tell about these healings, either to go and spread it publicly and abroad, or else in the case of the messianic miracles, to go directly to the priests to show it to them. Now, when he heals, he swears the person healed to secrecy. No longer are they supposed to go and tell anyone. This policy is in place for the Jews, though, not the Gentiles. It is the Jews who have made the irrevocable decision to reject him as the Messiah. And so first century Israel received no more miracles for the purpose of provoking their faith. The message, similarly to the miracles, also changed. Originally, the message was that the Messiah had come and he was offering the kingdom to first century Israel. This message being rejected now went into secrecy. 
He would train his disciples. He would train his apostles. He would reveal himself to them. Peter would even make a claim, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus' response to him is shocking if we don't understand what is going on. Jesus says to tell no one. This is because he is not here anymore for the purpose of provoking acceptance by Israel, but for the purpose of training the apostles for what would take place after he departed. His last purpose left on earth then is one, to train, and two, to provide the sacrifice necessary to redeem mankind. Were he to go about a loud ministry, as he had performed in the first half of his ministry, then Israel would seek to kill him before his time. His ministry went into secrecy, to quietness, so that he would be able to train his disciples before it was the time for him to provide the proper sacrifice. Israel has made their decision. His ministry goes from a national ministry to an individual ministry. And so we are not surprised when we see his method of teaching changing. It was precisely his clarity of teaching that provoked the Pharisees, who understood that he was opposing their doctrine, that provoked them to reject him. Were it to go on at such a fever pitch, things would have gotten a lot worse a lot faster. So his method now changes from clear speaking to veiled speaking. He uses parables to teach in public. We see this in Mark 4.33. It says, With many such parables he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it, and he did not speak to them without a parable. But he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. Those who did not believe did not receive any more revelation. They would still hear the teaching of Christ, but it would be foolishness to them. Those who heard the parables and sought to understand them would go to Jesus and he would explain them. These were his disciples. Matthew 13, 12, For whoever has to him more shall be given. He will have an abundance. But whoever does not have even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Those who had received Jesus as their Messiah would continue to receive more revelation about him. Those who had rejected him were shut off from understanding. And this fulfilled prophecy. But if you'll recall some of our first messages, there are multiple different types of fulfilled prophecy in the New Testament. One prerequisite for a literal fulfillment is to have a literal prophecy. The prophecy cited by Matthew here, cited by Christ in the original episode, was not originally a prophecy. It comes from Isaiah's commission to prophesy against Israel about their coming captivity in Babylon. 
It reads, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. And so this is a historical event plus an applicational fulfillment. The author is drawing a comparison between what is happening in Jesus' day with what was happening in Isaiah's day. The prophecy was, you will keep on hearing but will not understand. You will keep on seeing but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear. They have closed their eyes, otherwise they would see with their eyes. Hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. Isaiah was given a prophetic ministry that would not be conventionally successful. He would preach and his words would land on deaf ears. He knew this from the very beginning of his ministry, but that does not mean his ministry would be unfruitful. It just had a different purpose. The same goes here for Jesus. His teaching would not be received. It would not be here understood but by those who sought to understand, an explanation would be provided. And so we should also understand a little bit about parables, what they are and what they are not. So I have a caution at first. A parable is a very malleable literary tool. They fit many different scenarios, circumstances, and so on. They are putty in the hands of the wielder. You can take a parable out of context and make it mean just about whatever you would like. They're actually designed that way. They are real-world scenarios. They are not allegorical. They are not fantastical. There is no sort of vague imagery in a parable. They speak of real-world scenarios using the Jewish method of Valcomer, Cal Wyomer, uh, going from the easier to understand to the harder to understand. A real-world scenario is posed to the listeners so that they can understand a spiritual scenario. And so context becomes incredibly vital. As soon as a parable is stripped from its biblical context, it loses all scriptural significance. Each one of these parables that we are about to look at has at times been stripped of its biblical significance in order to apply it to church-age truth. These fit. They do work. They can be applied as literary tools to what is going on in the church age. But this is not what Jesus is teaching. Jesus has put these in the context of answering the question about the postponed kingdom. And so we have to keep that context in mind because parables can mean whatever we make them if we take them out of context. Additionally, these are literal. The parable has a literal sense. The literal sense has to first be understood before we begin to apply it to the spiritual sense. We don't apply one literal piece to the spiritual equation and then go and grab another literal piece to apply it to the spiritual scenario. We have to understand the entirety of the parable's literal scenario before we apply the whole thing at once to the spiritual scenario. 
This is much like a math equation. And that fits because similes and metaphors are essentially linguistic math equations. One thing equals another, or one thing is like another. And so in an algebraic equation, if we are solving for x, we don't begin by finding the square root of x. This does not solve our problem. We might feel like we are interpreting, or we might feel like we're doing math because we're moving things around. But ultimately, we would still have to supply some sort of number for x. We would still have to supply some sort of interpretation for the spiritual scenario. The danger in this is we think that we have done the legwork to get there by performing mathematic procedures or by performing some sort of exegesis on the passage. But in the end, it's going to be our own presuppositions that we fill in x for. So we have to first understand the simplest form of the parable. What does the parable mean if it were a literal story without a spiritual significance? This is increased in importance when there are symbols in the parable that are not explained. Now we have two variables. Do we start by trying to figure out, whoops, oh, where'd I go? Oh, this got all messed up. Well, let me go back to here. Do we start by subtracting 3 from x to find out what y is? That's not going to work. We have to find out what y is in the context. Now, this won't work for our mathematic equation anyways. But how do we find out y? We have to understand the scenario in real life. So keep that in mind as we go through some of these parables. We'll practice that on the parable of the sower first. Our last principle here in interpreting these parables is Scripture interprets Scripture. And this is going to be one of the clearest senses of that because two of these parables, the primary parables here, are explained by Christ. He actually just gives a list of the symbols and their spiritual significance. We still have to understand the parable's plain sense, but we get all of our X's, Y's, and Z's filled out for us. The last thing to discuss before we actually dig into these parables is the kingdom program. And I think this is where things get Harry, because everyone seems to have a different idea of what the kingdom is. We have to understand it from its Old Testament context. The Old Testament never teaches about a mystery kingdom. And now, yes, a mystery is something never before revealed, but the kingdom has been revealed, and Jesus is revealing something never before taught about the kingdom, not a brand new kingdom. He is not using a, an amalgamation of language, which would only serve to confuse. And he is not using replacement theology to teach something new about Israel's kingdom. There has been an invention of a mystery kingdom by theologians. It started from trying to replace Israel and say, no longer is there a kingdom for Israel, 
but the church is a spiritual kingdom where God rules in the hearts of the believers. Some have taken this language and applied it then to a rule of God in the hearts of the believers throughout all ages, but this is not biblical language. This is applying a biblical framework onto a spiritualized theology. The Bible only speaks of two different kingdoms. The universal kingdom, over which God rules and reigns, always has and always will. The throne of which has always been occupied by God and will never be occupied by anyone else. There was only one instance in which another kingdom came into being. And that was at creation, when God, in his creation, created a throne and placed Adam on it, gave him the responsibility to rule over creation on his behalf, subject to God and not to creation. And Adam instead subjected himself to creation and disobeyed God. And so this rule was taken from Adam and returned to God. And he holds that title deed to the earth in his hand until someone worthy is able to take it up. And so as we go through all of biblical history, and that is all of history, we see that the thrust of the historical narrative is always restoring God's creation purpose of a throne over creation upon which man sits, restoring that to the earth. There are not three, four, or five different kinds of kingdoms that God is all organizing together. There is only one earthly kingdom. It was given to Adam. It was later restored in part or in a microcosm or in a shadow form to Abraham. But this was the same kingdom. It was not a different kingdom. And then with Moses it was actually established as a theocracy, a theocratic kingdom on earth, ruled first by the judges in a mediatory sense, and then given to the dynasty of David in an eternal sense. This kingdom cannot change. This kingdom belongs to the throne line of David. And the seed of David will sit on that throne over this earth. There is no mystery kingdom interceding. Oh, I lost my place here. There we go. That is the mediatorial kingdom. Jesus will sit on that mediatorial throne until finally it merges with God's throne itself. Because only God can sit on God's throne So we do not have a mystery kingdom here. Jesus is not teaching that the church is part of a mystery kingdom that has never been revealed before. The church is not a kingdom. The church is an organism, not an organization. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We are not his subjects in the sense of a vassal. We are part of his body. We are not a mystery kingdom. And so as we go through these parables, we will recognize that they are not church parables. These are Jewish parables. These are given to the Jewish people to teach them something about God's program for the Jewish people. 
And now we get to dive into these parables. They come in two sets. There are some parables spoken in public, which Christ interprets still privately to his disciples. And then there are some spoken in private. Now, as I said, they are a web. The parable of the sower is the primary parable. This is what Jesus is teaching. The other parables hang off of this parable. In fact, they don't hang off the parable itself. They hang off the explanation of the parable. Jesus gives this parable, and when the disciples ask him what it means, he explains to them what it means, and then he delivers another slew of parables. These parables are the, for the purpose of helping to understand what is going on in the first parable. He will do this again with the parable of the tares. The parable of the tares was a public parable, and they ask him in private to interpret it. He interprets it and then gives them three more parables to help them understand the parable of the tares. They are illustrations with a context, and the context is their controlling parable. And so we start with the parable of the sower. <clears throat> it says, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road. The birds came and ate them up. Now we're going to see four different types of soil. Two things remain consistent in each one. The sower is the same, and the type of seed is the same. Those will be interpreted for us later, but we want to understand the real-world scenario that's going on here. This is an agricultural scene which Israel would be very familiar with. There is a sower, and he is casting seed, and not all seed falls on similarly receptive soil. Naturally, he tries to aim it or target it towards good soil, but it's bound to fall in places that are unreceptive. So, so in this case, where it falls on the road, the road is hard, compact dirt. It has no place to sink in, and the birds easily come and pluck it up. The seed does not even enter the soil. Then of the other seeds, they fell on rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. So this shallow, rocky soil, rather than being able to dig deep into the soil and grow and cultivate for a time below the soil before it is strong enough and springs up, here it quickly shoots up. It has no roots so that when in the rocky soil, which is drier and less moist generally than the other soil, when the sun comes out, it is scorched and it does not have time to produce any fruit. And so it withers away. Others fall among thorns, and the thorns come up and choke them out. And then others fall on good soil, and they yield a crop. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now that he who has ears, let him hear is simply a conclusion to this parable, saying this parable is finished. It began by, here is a parable, and it concludes with, he who has ears, let him hear. This is simply a teaching pattern, saying this is the beginning, this is the end. These fell on 
thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. It appears as if the thorns were not there when they fell, but the thorns grew up faster than these seeds and eventually took the resources, blocked the sun, and choked them out. They did not have time to grow up. But then that which falls on good soil does yield a crop. It grows regularly. And in its regular growth, it produces fruit. It produces other seeds. Keep in mind, these are the same kinds of seeds as produced them. There has been no change in the seed. It is the same seed. So we have these four different kinds of soil. These are our alternating variables. We have the roadside, where the seed is plucked up by birds. We have the rocky soil, where they are scorched. We have the thorns, where they are choked out. And we have the good soil, where they become productive. Jesus gives us his explanation of these parables. He interprets these signs for us. He says, those that fall on the roadside, that is those who have no understanding. And then he says that the birds are the evil one, Satan or the devil, comes and plucks away these seeds. Now, he doesn't yet interpret the seeds for us, but we will come to see that these are the sons of the kingdom when they sprout up. What produces the sons of the kingdom is the message of the kingdom. The soils being the reception of that message. And so the ones on whom this seed falls but does not go into the ground is the one who did not understand and so did not receive the message of the kingdom. We apply this in the church age sometimes to the one who hears the gospel message of salvation Again, keep in mind that is not what Jesus is teaching here. But when there is no understanding, there is no belief, and there is no reception, there is no salvation. These did not understand the teachings of Jesus, the fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus came to fulfill, because they had no understanding, and this probably stretches back into their prior understanding before the arrival of the Messiah. If you don't understand the prophecies to begin with, you don't understand the fulfillment when it is in front of you. If you don't have an expectation of a Messiah, when he comes, you don't receive him. For the rocky soil, it's a bit different. They do receive him with joy. They have at least a basic understanding of who he is, and they want that messianic kingdom, but they don't understand the trials and tribulations that might come with that message. And so similarly to John's challenges with uh, the lack of reception to Jesus, these ones get worried. Their joy slips away, and they eventually fall away. Now again, this is often applied to church doctrine of salvation, and it is more often than not very poorly applied, just in the same way as this one originally received the kingdom and then fell away. So the one who originally receives the message of salvation and then falls away does not lose his salvation, but loses that ability to produce fruit. He becomes spiritually dead in the sense of not producing fruit. 
not spiritually dead in the sense of no longer saved. Again, I must stress, this parable is not about that. But a parable, being a malleable literary tool, can be applied to just about anything. The thorny soil chokes out what would otherwise be a receptive heart. It explains these, again, as the worries of the world. Worries about money, worries about family, friends. It chokes out this message so it has no time to grow up and produce fruit. But then those who understand the seed that falls on good soil, it perseveres to full growth and it yields seed. Now, up to this point in Matthew and the other Gospels, Seed has not been, or rather fruit of any sort of plant, has not been good works. It has been the message produced. You will know them by their fruit, Jesus says about the Pharisees' bad message. You will know a good teacher by his good fruit, by his good message. This seed is not good works. It is the continuation of the original gospel message the gospel message of the kingdom. As they grow up spiritually, they produce, again, the same message that gave birth to them, that gave birth to their spiritual birth. This seed continues to produce a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. Now, sometimes this is applied to revivals in the church age. There have been revivals that have yielded huge yields, others that have yielded lesser yields, and then lastly, some that are uh, nothing really to write home about. These are applied prophetically to the church age, actually historical prophetically, but they could not have possibly understood this in their context. And we will notice at the end of this line of parables, Jesus asks the disciples, did you understand all of this? And they say, yes. This would be a false statement if there were things in here that they could not understand because we would have to look back on history to understand it, not revelation. Mark and Luke record the parable of the lamp. Matthew does not does not fit into his theme as well as the others do. This comes as part of the explanation of the parable of the sower, and it really shows you how these continuing parables connect to the previous parable. It says, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? It is not brought to be put on a lampstand. For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. These parables are meant to be revealing. These are not parables that conceal new truth that won't be understood until generations future. These are explaining. Yet you've got two things working together. You have Jesus explaining what just went on, but you also have a new method of teaching in public, parables. So he is revealing 
while having veiled speech. And so those who are listening and in belief and receiving an explanation are receiving this as an explanation, that these parables are meant to reveal something about what is going on. Nothing is hidden except to be revealed. Only Mark records then the explanation of this parable. Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given and whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. This was the issue. Take care what you listen to. Take care what message you receive and believe. Even those who have received and believed in the message of the kingdom might fall away. John 6, 66 shows us that many of Jesus' disciples did fall away after his rejection. So take care what you listen to. Heed these parables. Heed the teaching of the original message of the kingdom. Don't change what you believe. Mark then gives us as well the parable of the seed. This is different than the parable of the mustard seed, and it explains a bit about the seed in the parable of the sower. The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil, and he goes to bed at night and gets up by day. And the seed sprouts and grows, how he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. This seed is producing of itself. It is not Jesus who came and made Israel believe and receive the kingdom. He casts out the message, and the message falls on various soils. It is not up to him to have Israel receive him or reject him. He did everything that he was required to do. He sowed the seeds, but the seeds, the message, produces of its own. And then we get the parable of the mustard seed. This one is recorded in Matthew and Mark. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is fully grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now we've probably all heard this parable before, probably in Sunday school, and they say that this is the church. It starts small and it grows to be big and wonderful. This has nothing to do with the church. This is also not Christendom. This is not saying that the church grows beyond the faithful, and so some will claim to be part of the church who are not actually part of the church. People usually divide on whether or not this is a sinister image. Is it a positive, yay, look how big the church is? Is it a negative, look how bad and big the church has become? No one seems to see what I think I see in this text, in this parable. Nowhere has the church been anywhere in the context of the Gospels up to this point? And nowhere yet in these parables has Jesus been explaining anything future. He is still explaining what just happened. 
what started out as a small seed in Israel that claims to be the kingdom has become huge beyond its borders, has so covered the field that the good wheat might not even grow. I believe this is the doctrines of the Pharisees, the oral law. The very reason Israel rejected the Messiah, the countless, countless, countless laws that were added to Moses' perfect law so that it no longer resembled anything like what it was originally supposed to be. Just a few parables earlier, in a parable which this one is explaining, the birds were the workers of the evil one. Here, the birds are nested in its branches. God gave a perfect law to Moses, and Israel, trying to do something good, corrupted it so that the original law of Moses was no longer recognizable. It had grown to be a monstrosity that had nothing to do with God's original intention. And so it provided an excellent nesting place for the workers of the evil one. The parable of the mustard seed is a pair with the parable of the leaven. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was leavened. Again, some like to see something positive here. Yea, the church is getting leavened and now everyone's going to be converted. Again, this has nothing to do with the church. Nothing at all. And these are all Jewish symbols. The woman is a well-known Jewish symbol for religious systems. The wife of Jehovah, Israel herself, is often used the symbol of a woman. The church will later use the symbol of a woman, the bride of Christ. In Revelation 2, Jezebel is used as a symbol of the false religion in Smir Sardis, one of those, Pergamum. In Revelation 17, Mystery of Babylon is used as a symbol, a woman, this is, I guess I didn't indicate that here, the great harlot is the symbol of false religion throughout all the ages. The woman here operating in secrecy is a false religious system. As well, I've had it pointed out that leaven is not always a bad symbol. It is often used of sin, but not always. That is very true. However, Matthew uses it as the teaching of the Pharisees. Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And of course, Jesus Disciples say, oops, did we forget to bring bread? Jesus says, how is it that you do not understand what I did not, that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread,
but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Matthew uses this symbol as the teaching, the bad teaching, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It has entered into Israel, and it has corrupted what was given to them. Now, many people see different things in these three pecks of flour. One interpretation that is very common is that these are the three branches of Christianity, Eastern Orthodox, Catholicism, and Protestantism. That is nowhere here in the context, and you can't know that until after the Reformation even. This is the same issue as occurs in Revelation 2 and 3, where they are given a historical prophetic interpretation that they mean the different ages of the church. The original audience could never have interpreted that from the text. And the text was originally delivered to the original audience. I believe these three pecks of flour are the three divisions of the Hebrew scriptures. The Pharisees and the Sadducees have gotten in there and corrupted them. They have changed the teaching of the word of God by interpreting them in spurious ways. At this point, we have no more record of his public parables, save only for the parable of the tares, which I've saved for the private parables, because the explanation comes in those private parables. But Luke tells us that Jesus was interrupted during his public parables. His mother and his brothers came to see him. Now, if you remember in the last session, we saw that Jesus' people recognized that he was not acting himself. He was going mad, it appeared. He was about to be rejected, and he knew it was coming. And so perhaps someone sent for his family members, and they showed up. And this was a good opportunity for him to teach yet again against some of the doctrine of the Pharisees. Here it says, Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Behold my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is not Jesus renouncing his family. We see that even from the cross, he is concerned about the well-being of his mother. But he is using this as an opportunity yet again to teach a spiritual truth. That earthly relationships don't cut it for spiritual matters. Spiritual relationships deal in spiritual matters. You might say, the blood of Abraham has nothing to do with your salvation. But the blood of the Messiah has everything to do with your salvation. We now turn to the private parables. The parable of the tares was given in public, and perhaps the disciples continued to ponder these parables. And later, when they had an opportunity in private, they pulled him aside and said, we just don't understand this one. Could you explain the parable of the tares? And so he does. First, we'll take a little bit or a little look at the parable of the tares. There were a lot of symbols here. A sower sowed good seed in a field, and then while he was asleep, 
an enemy came and sowed bad seed in his field. His servants came to him and told him what happened, and they said, should we go and pick out all the bad seed? And the sower says, no, don't do that. You might harm some of the good seed. Wait instead for it to all grow up, and then we will pull out the tares and cast them into the furnace, and we will pull out the good seed, the wheat, and pile it into my barn. And so at the harvest, the reapers come, and they would tediously have to pick through these tares and separate them from the wheat. This is no easy procedure. But the explanation comes, and Jesus just gives a clean, plain, and simple one-to-one for each of these symbols. We love this. It makes an interpreter's job very easy. The sower is the son of man. Presumably, he has been the son of man in every single one of these parables, because remember, the parable of the tares was part of those public parables. It all came out of the explanation of the parable of the sower. This is not the evangelist going and casting the gospel. This was Jesus bringing the gospel message of the kingdom. The field is the world. The enemy is the evil one, a euphemism for Satan. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom, and the bad seed is the sons of the evil one. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels, he says. And so this one teaches us how the good seed will grow up along the bad seed, and the good seed has grown up along the bad seed. We can apply this to the church age. This happens here too. But it is far more applicable because this was the intention of Jesus when he gave them to explain what is going on in Israel. There are two harvests to be had in Israel. There is a remnant of believing Israel, and there is an unbelieving Israel that has a different destiny, the seed of the evil one. And it won't be fully sorted. In fact, it won't be sorted at all until the end of the age. This is about Israel. The church is nowhere yet in view. And Jesus continues to explain this parable by giving another parable that is clearly about the remnant of Israel. This is the parable of the hidden treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, the worst possible interpretation of this is that you go and find the gospel buried somewhere and you sell everything to follow it. This is actually a published view by one of the biggest Bible teachers in America. I won't tell you who. You can ask me privately if you're concerned that you might listen to this preacher. This treasure has to be understood in its gospel or in its Old Testament context. And the man should not for any reason here be changed from what the previous parable taught. That man is the son of man. 
And it is only the Son of Man who pays the ultimate price to purchase anything from the earth. As well, we might point out that you don't buy the gospel from the earth. It comes from heaven, down to earth, by means of the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And in that blood sacrifice, he and he alone sells all that he has. This treasure is a common term in the Old Testament to speak of Israel, God's treasured possession, his possession from the earth. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And that means the spiritual church, right? No, it does not. That means Israel. Israel tends to mean Israel in Scripture. It's one of the hardest things to interpret, obviously. This treasure that God has prepared to take out of this earth was prepared way back in the times of Moses. He has come to, oops, in this parable, it says he comes and he finds it. It's buried. It's not all of Israel. It's the Israel of God, which Paul explains in Galatians. The Israel of God is not the church. The Israel of God is the portion of Israel which believes in their Messiah, which receives him as their Savior. And now he continues to explain a bit about this harvest, because there's something left out. Yes, the harvest of the last days will be for the remnant of Israel. But there's something else with which Jesus purchased from the earth. It was not only the remnant of Israel. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the same fee, the same cost to purchase out of the earth the remnant of Israel. And it was the same transaction which Jesus completes both. The remnant of Israel, those souls, were purchased by the death of Christ. And they received the benefits of that purchase through faith. Faith in their Messiah. This pearl, however, is something different than that treasure buried in the field. This is taken out of the ocean which in Daniel 7 is used as a symbol of the Gentile nations. And again in Revelation, a little more clearly in one single verse that fits on one single slide, it is again described using the imagery of Daniel as multitudes and or peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. This goes beyond Israel. This pearl of great price is teaching something about the kingdom of God, which applies to the church age, but he is not teaching that there will be a church age here. He is teaching that he has a portion of the Gentiles as well, something besides the remnant of Israel. And this is not new 
to Israel. They know, especially if they have read Isaiah, that God has a plan for the Gentiles. What they do not understand is that they have a portion in the kingdom. The kingdom belongs to Israel, but the same purchase which purchases the remnant for the kingdom purchases another people as well. And so he wraps this up with an inclusio, the parable of the dragnet. This is very similar to the harvest from the earth, which had to do with Israel and Israel only. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea, a different location, a Gentile location, and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take the wicked from among the righteous. This is the judgment of the Gentiles. But it's looking forward to yet another Jewish age in the tribulation period. At this point, the church is still unrevealed. This is not a grand revelation to the disciples of the church. That will come in private as he teaches them. Here he is teaching them that Gentiles will also have a portion in the final judgment on the basis of wickedness and righteousness. It is not based on their blood, if they are the sons of Abraham or if they are Gentiles. The kingdom is made up of God's spiritual children, primarily Israel, the remnant, the Israel of God. There is also a place for Gentiles. These fish, just like the tares sown in Israel, the bad ones will be thrown into the furnace where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is not outer darkness in the kingdom. This is hell. This is a final judgment for those who do not have the righteousness of Christ the Messiah. All of these parables are then summarized. Actually, the understanding of these parables is summarized in the last parable, the parable of the householder. Jesus asks his disciples, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes, which they could only do if it was in understandable language and the explanation made sense with what they already knew. Jesus said to them, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings out his treasure, things new and old. Now, it is interesting here that he says every scribe, which is the disciple of the kingdom of heaven, because there are plenty of scribes in Israel, but not all are the disciples of the kingdom of heaven. And many of them have much to say, drawing pearls of wisdom out of scripture that were never there. Here, Jesus has given them parables, new instruction, revelation about those scriptures. Those who are disciples of the kingdom of heaven draw out of the Old Testament these treasures, and they are treasures as if new. They are teachings that are consistent 100% with the Old Testament, but are revealed something new about them.